0: We're going to be looking at the uh, whole subject of a uh, divorce and remarriage tonight. And I'm, I'm going to try and, and be as definitive as, as it's reasonably possible to be. Um, so if you, if you start off, grab your Bibles and uh, go to Deuteronomy 24. And this is obviously a vitally important passage because ev- everything that we're going to see in the New Testament on this subject and actually we'll see there's not actually when it comes to quantity there's not really many verses to look at in the New Testament at all but what we do need to realize is that everything we're going to look at is against the background of the verses we're going to read now and it's only when we properly understand the whole principle of divorce here that we're going to understand what Jesus and what Paul We're talking about in their teaching concerning it in the New Testament. So Deuteronomy 24, we're just going to read verses 1 to 4. Now, we're not going to be interested in applying all the ins and outs of everything these verses cover. But what we are interested in is just understanding biblically what divorce is. Because if we don't understand it from this passage, we're going to be up a gum tree in all you know, in the rest of our thinking. So Deuteronomy 24, I'm going to read uh, verse 1 to 4. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, And if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, Mm -hmm. give it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled that would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. And as I say, we're not concerned about all the ins and outs with that, but this is the Old Testament verse against which all the New Testament teaching is set. And so what we've got to understand is that when we're dealing with the New Testament, we're looking at divorce and remarriage as understood by the Jews against the background of the Mosaic law. And what I want you to really get hold of from these verses is that divorce is there for one reason and one reason only. So you can remarry. Now, in our society today because marriage is a legal thing we have divorce quite separate from remarriage so the point is there are people who divorce and remarry but there are people who will divorce for whatever reason who have no intention of remarrying and that's necessary for all kinds of legal reasons etc etc but what we've got to understand in regards to remarriage as far as the Mosaic Law is concerned is that we're not now asking the question whether or not (coughs) biblically it's okay to end a marriage. The question we're asking is whether it's okay to remarry having done so. Can you see the difference? So the key thing to get here is that in the Mosaic Law Amongst the Jews, the whole point about divorce was purely so you were able to remarry, okay? Now that's the first thing we need to understand about this passage in Deuteronomy. The second thing that we need to understand is that it makes clear that a man could divorce his wife if she had become displeasing to him because of indecency however no further definition is given can you see it's a very very general statement okay now at the time of jesus amongst the jews there were two different schools of thought concerning these verses there was a guy called rabbi hillel and he immensely influential and he taught that a man could put his wife away fundamentally for any reason he taught that what deuteronomy means here is that that the emphasis is simply on if she displeases him you see what i mean so literally if she if she burnt his food <laughs> This guy, Hillel, thought the man could put her away because that displeased yeah. him and therefore she's become indecent. So the first school of thought was basically a man could divorce his wife and therefore was free to remarry for virtually any reason. But the other school of thought, which was from a guy called Rabbi Shammai, also extremely influential, his interpretation of this verse was that the divorce could only be legitimate if the wife had committed adultery so can you see these two totally different schools of thought the Hill school of thought said basically if the husband doesn't like it, you know, for any reason he can divorce and remarry so remember that's what divorce was for in the Mosaic law whereas the other school of thought was no You can only divorce your wife and legitimately remarry if your wife was guilty of adultery. Now, obviously, another thing we've got to say about the Deuteronomy passage is we are not under the Mosaic law. So our question is, what does Jesus... What do the Apostles, what does the New Testament say about it? Because we're under the New Covenant, not the Old. But we've got to understand everything we're going to read against the backdrop of uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4. So therefore, what is the New Covenant position in regards to divorce and remarriage? Okay, so go to Luke So now we are in the New Testament and go to Luke's gospel. And basically I'm going to be covering virtually all the verses in the New Testament that deal with this subject. As I say, when it comes to quantity, there's not a lot there, you know, which, which kind of makes it fairly, fairly straightforward to that extent. So Luke chapter 16. And uh, we're going to read verse 18. All right. Now, this is Jesus speaking. Luke who? This is Luke 16 and verse 18. And it's Jesus speaking. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery now let's let's do the Greek first okay um <laughs> divorce what what's the Greek now again we have going to understand in English we have virtually a technical word divorce and it just means one thing I mean okay it, can mean other things as well you know you might say I would like to divorce myself from that idea but fundamentally our word divorce is specifically a word that denotes the official legal ending of a marriage now this is not the case when it comes to the Greek of the New Testament there is not a technical word for divorce in Greek There are simply various words in Greek which mean all sorts of manner of to put someone away, to depart, to break something up. And these words are used of divorce amongst other things, okay? So so therefore it is important to understand that. We're not just going to be dealing with one Greek word for divorce, okay? Primarily we're going to be dealing with two. And in the Gospels, we're going to be looking at the Gospels, and then we're going to be looking at the teaching of Paul. In the Gospels, the Greek word here that gets translated divorce is Apollyou. And it's simply a Greek word that means to set free. It means to let go. It means to loose from. And it was used in a multitude of ways. It was the Greek word that you would use um, of releasing a prisoner. If a prisoner has done his time, you release him. Okay. Um, if someone had was leaving the army, so they they've done their time, they leave the army. It's the same word. Um, or if you if you had a a situation of a, you know sort of someone who's tied up and you were going to loose them, set them free it's simply a general Greek word for the idea of to set free or to let go but it was a word that was used also of divorce as in the ending of a marriage okay so therefore we've simply got here the idea divorce setting someone free i.e. you don't have to be married to that person anymore so therefore Based on this, Jesus says, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. So let's ask the question. Here we've got Jesus speaking. Based on this, so who's right, Shammai or Hillel? Which score of thought was right? Well, based on this, neither. This verse would actually lead us to believe there can be no divorce or remarriage at all. Okay, mm-hmm. Remember, all the time... We've got to understand this from the Jewish point of view. The background to this, in Deuteronomy, the whole point is that divorce is there so you can get married. It's not merely to do with not wanting to be married to who you're married to. It's to do with bringing about a situation where you can then marry someone else you want to be married to. Do you see the point? So really, this verse of Jesus all right, doesn't really tell us whether Shammai or Hillel were right. Now go to Mark. Mark chapter 10. Now we're going to see a little bit more in-depth teaching from Jesus here. And uh, we're going to read uh, from verse 2. Mark chapter 10 and verse 2 some Pharisees came and tested him by asking is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife what did Moses command you he replied they said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of of divorce and send her away can you see the point the key is Deuteronomy 24 everything revolves around Deuteronomy 24 (coughs) what is the application of that in the new covenant And then in verse 5 Jesus goes on and he says it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. Jesus replied, but at the beginning of creation God made them male and female. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Exactly the same thing, based purely on this. If we ask the question, so who was right, Shammai and Hillel? Well, if we're going just by this, as with uh, what <coughs> Jesus taught in Luke, neither of them. All right, you know, here this seems to be Jesus saying no marriage or divor- no divorce and remarriage at all but just one thing before we move on just look at verse 12 now this is interesting he in verse 11 he says anyone who divorces his wife that's the man and remember Deuteronomy only talks about man divorcing his wife not the other way around but here Jesus says and if she divorces her husband Jesus introduces an equality here in the sense that unlike in I mean in under the Mosaic law the only question was was a man can can a man divorce his wife? End of story. Wives couldn't divorce their husbands. But interestingly enough, now Jesus introduces the idea not just of a man divorcing his wife, but a wife divorcing the husband. And yet he does so only to say, no, no, you mustn't do it, or you'll be committing adultery. So thus far, it looks actually like Shammai and Hillel were both wrong. Ooh. And yet, obviously, just coming back to what I said earlier, the whole point about the Deuteronomy teaching is that divorce is simply to allow remarriage. So this would be odd if we were to discover that actually in the New Covenant there is no divorce and remarriage at all. So now go to Matthew. Go to Matthew's Gospel. We're going to look at two sections in Matthew's Gospel. The first one in chapter 19. And you'll soon get the point that these are all Parallel passages, by which I mean they're just different accounts of the same teaching that Jesus would have given on numerous occasions throughout his ministry. In the same way that, obviously, through the years, I mean I've I've taught the same kind of things again and again and again at different times and in different places. It's exactly the same with Jesus. So then, let's let's read Matthew 19, and we're going to read from verse three to nine, and you'll see how. Totally, you know, a parallel passage. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? They're saying, hey, was Hillel right? You see, that's what they're asking. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man gives his wife a certificate of divorce to send her away? Jesus replied Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. So again, let's get this right. They're asking, not just in general, you know, Jesus, what's your take on Deuteronomy 24? They're saying, in particular, was Hillel right? They're saying, can, can, is it okay to divorce? Can we divorce our wives for any reason? And in Jesus' response, his emphasis is, of course, one, that marriage is for life. He goes straight back to Genesis. That marriage is for life, therefore, don't put apart what God has joined together. And the other point he makes, which needs making, and we're going to see later on why, the other point he makes is not just that marriage is for life, but that it's with one person. Because he goes back to Adam and Eve. God created Eve to be Adam's wife, just one woman, you see. So therefore, we see that Jesus says, no, marriage is for life, and it is to the same person, i.e. Uh, what, what the Bible teaches is monogamy. You can only have one wife. Yeah. However, what we've got here is an exception clause. And Jesus said, accept for adultery. So what we see here is that these people were saying Jesus, was Hill right? Jesus said no, Shammai was right. The only reason that you can divorce legitimately remembering the whole point is whether or not you're legitimately free to remarry. That was the only reason divorce was there. And Jesus here says no, there is an adultery clause. Now, I've only ever come across three other explanations for what this means, alright, and I'll quickly go through them and to show why I don't see it. Firstly, there are those who teach that in Matthew, and we're going to, in a minute, move on and we're going to look at Matthew 5, where again we get the adultery clause. There are some... Who say that this is an, in Matthew's Gospel, we have an interpolation by a scribe after the Bible was written. So that what we have here, that actually it's someone else who's put it in, but it, it, it's not actually in the Bible. Shouldn't be in the Bible. Well, I mean, there's absolutely no truth in that because it's in all the manuscripts. You see what I mean? And if you're if you're gonna you know sort of say you know oh will know some scribe put this in and it shouldn't be there. Well, you 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 could do that to lots of bits in the Bible that you don't like. You see what I mean? Oh, the Bible says this. Oh no, I reckon some scribe put that in later. I reject that idea completely because I believe in the you know infallibility of Scripture. You know that clause except for adultery is in all known manuscripts okay so there's no question of it just being a mistake all right it's not a mistake it's there now the second um thing that some some people say is 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 they're saying no because here jesus isn't talking about remarriage he's just talking about divorce So they're saying that what Jesus is saying, uh, you can't even divorce your wife unless she's committed adultery. But this has got nothing to do with remarriage. There is never any remarriage. Now, that's another interpretation of this verse. Again, the reason that I can't go with that is because what we've seen is this is Jesus doing a commentary on Deuteronomy 24. The whole context and point of Deuteronomy 24 is the point about remarriage. So so to say that Jesus is merely talking about divorcing but not remarrying, that is to fail to take into account what divorce was in the Mosaic Law. So again, although I accept that as being honourable, I can't go with it, because clearly everything Jesus here is saying is against the background of Deuteronomy 24 it's not just divorce the whole point of divorce is freedom to remarry so so therefore whereas I accept that as honorable and it certainly is is defending the sanctity of marriage uh, it's not 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 something that I can agree with and then the third alternate interpretation of this verse that I've come across is that Jesus is talking about divorce as in ending a Jewish betrothal and he's not actually talking about marriage at all now it's absolutely true at the time of Jesus a Jewish betrothal whereas it was less binding than marriage it was certainly far more binding than our modern engagement is and it's certainly true If you were betrothed to someone, you actually had to have a divorce to get out of the marriage. And obviously if you discovered that the person you were betrothed to was was sleeping around or (coughs) something, that would be grounds for it. But again, I can't go with that interpretation. And for this simple reason, what is the context? These people here in Matthew 19... The question they're asking Jesus is about marriage and divorce. It's Deuteronomy 24. It's not about betrothal. It's about marriage. And so, therefore, although there are these three other, you know, interpretations of the verse, I'm just explaining to you why I can't go with any of them, OK? Um, and And therefore, for me... I can't make any possible sense of Matthew 19 outside of Jesus saying that the innocent victim of adultery is free to divorce and therefore is free to remarry. So we've got to ask, okay, this clause that we're seeing here in Jesus' teaching is this a slackening in the sanctity of marriage is is this somehow a dumbing down of the marriage commitment and i want to show you that absolutely not it isn't let let's just go back to all the scriptures that we've read thus far from what jesus taught okay you know we've we've done luke we've seen mark and now we've seen the scripture in matthew okay And what we're seeing, all of them say, is that if you marry illegitimately after being divorced, then not only are you committing adultery, but the person you marry is committing adultery as well. So, what we've got to get, and this is the really, really important bit we've got to underline in our thinking at this point in the study. What we have thus far is this. Unless you are the innocent victory victim of adultery, remarriage... Sorry, yeah. Unless you are the innocent victim of adultery, remarriage is adultery. So the key word here is adultery. Remarriage after illegitimate divorce is adultery. So what it boils down to is this. Yes, a wife really is for life, and not just Christmas. (laughs) And everything we're seeing is underlying that. Go back to Matthew five. And this is the only other place in the Bible where we have Jesus teaching on the subject of marriage and divorce. So Matthew chapter five and this is like you know in in, in what's you know like the the Sermon on on the Mount bit, okay? Matthew chapter five. It has been said Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. So immediately, what's the context? This is Jesus talking on the background, which is Deuteronomy 24. What verse you on? 31. Matthew 5:31. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery so there you have it again you've got the adultery clause but outside of that any illegitimate remarriage is adultery as well now let, let's just think about this because this is tough 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 because the vast majority of people who remarry having been divorced are doing so illegitimately and that applies to Christians who remarry as well most Christians who remarry nowadays after divorce are remarrying illegitimately And I want to show you a vitally important pattern here. A symmetry, if you like. There are sins which, when you've committed them, they can be confessed. They will then be forgiven by the Lord. And then you just carry on as if they never happened. And, 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 and there are many, many, you know, sins we commit that, that that's the deal. You sin, you confess it, God forgives you and you carry on as if it had never happened. But there are other sins that certainly if you confess them, they will be forgiven. But you can't then just carry on as if it hadn't happened. Because they are sins that carry with them consequences which must be willingly embraced as part of repentance. I'll give you an example. If if a single guy fornicates and that results in a child, well, there's forgiveness for that fornication. (coughs) And if that brother repents, he's in good standing. He's forgiven. To that extent, as if it's, it's as if it never happened. But he now has a lifelong responsibility as being a father to a child. He gives it a point. So there are some sins which, although there's forgiveness, there are lifelong consequences to them. Um, you may be convicted of the sin of robbing a bank... As you drive away in your getaway car. Now, if you are convicted of that sin, if you confess it to the Lord, there's no question, you're forgiven. And if you repent, you are a brother in good standing. But you must still go and hand yourself in at a police station. And you must still do your jail time. Can, can you see what I'm yeah. saying? This is, you know, the Bible's teaching you know, in regards to restitution. You know, like, for instance, if I, if, I, if I lost my temple with you and I was rude to you, well, I can't just say, oh, sorry, Lord, that was wrong that I I was rude to Lee, for example, and, and, and then just carry on as if it never happened. i have got to come and say sorry to Lee as well. Can you see the point here? There's sin which you confess and you're forgiven, and you carry on as if it never happened. But there are other types of sin where part of the repentance is embracing the responsibility of facing the consequences of those sins. And in that category of sins, where there needs to be restitution, where there are other There are consequences that you've got to embrace. There are two sins which stand absolutely apart from all others. The first one is murder and the second one is adultery. Now let me explain. The whole point of capital punishment and the Bible does teach murderers should be executed by the state. The whole point about capital punishment is that only the taking of the murderers life can properly maintain the sanctity of the life that they illegitimately took. You see the point? So therefore, that murderer can be forgiven. And indeed, there are murderers who have got saved before, they, before they're before they put to death and they go to heaven. They're with the Lord. That's wonderful. But the point is, if you've murdered some someone, illegitimately taken a human life, that human life is of such infinite value that nothing short of you forfeiting your life can uphold the sanctity of the life that you took. So th- there's the ultimate example. But the other example, you see, you've murdered, you've taken life, so your life is taken. That's the consequence. And you've got to accept that. Now, the other example is adultery, but it kind of works the other way around. And it works like this. If you are the innocent victim of adultery, then you can remarry. And it's not adultery. But your partner who committed adultery, if they ever remarry, for them it's more adultery. Can you see punishment fitting the crime here? Can you see the poetic justice? And the reason for that is that when a murderer, when someone murders, illegitimately takes a human life, they are touching something of infinite value. And in a marriage, there's a one flesh relationship between a husband and wife. And when someone commits adultery, when a husband or wife commits adultery, they touch that one flesh. And they touch it in such a way that they go and become one flesh with someone they should not be one flesh with, whilst they are already one flesh with their spouse whom they are meant to be one flesh with. Can you see the point? So therefore (coughs) the symmetry, the murderer loses his life. The adulterer cannot ever remarry because that would be more adultery. But the innocent victim of that adultery, they can remarry, but they're not committing adultery. Can can you see the thing there? It's to do with the touching of the sanctity of human life, and the adultery thing is to do with touching the sanctity of marriage. So can you see, this is why it's so vital to understand... That the illegitimate remarriage after illegitimate divorce is actually itself adultery. Now, let me say, in in all you know, in all the the years, obviously on and off that I've occupied my thing, you know, my thinking with things like this, <coughs> I've never come across anyone else who has presented that point. So I'm going to copyright it, okay. I'm going to write a book and and make an absolute fortune, you see. And fame and fortune will be mine. But can you see the point? I've never ever heard anyone put it like that. But I'm absolutely convinced that that is why we see the teaching of the Bible the way it is. So, so let's just ask, okay, so what have we got thus far, okay? Where, Where have we come thus far? Well, when you marry you marry for life and there is no way out now let me say as well that most people eventually in a marriage will hit problems there are some who don't and that must be absolutely fantastic But most people two sinners you know living to get really close together you're going to hit problems the chances are and the point is If there's any question of having a a way of escape mentality, then the point is you don't have the necessary incentive to deal with those problems. The whole point, well, not the whole point, but Mm -hmm. one of the things about why marriage is for life is because there's no way out. And anything less than that there are times when probably you wouldn't have the necessary incentive to work through the problems that you're having. You see what I mean? There are times when it's only knowing there's no way out that's going to focus you on getting through this because oh my goodness, life is not going to be good if we don't work through this, and and that is part and parcel, okay? And of course, there's a vicious circle, and this is the sort of thing that Satan does. Christians get slack when it comes to marriage and divorce. Therefore the next generation of Christians they marry with a get-out clause. So they hit problems and rather than hit problem, rather than sort it out, they do, oh, I'm not happy, I'm not fulfilled in this marriage, what a brute I've married, or or the husband saying, oh, what an insensitive, unsubmissive wife I've got, and all their Christian friends are saying, oh, we, oh my God, yes, the Lord wants you to be fulfilled, maybe he's leading you to end the marriage, and, and can you see what I mean? Now this is what's happening on the Christian scene. So obviously it's only when we've got Clear that we haven't got any get out clauses, all right, to that extent that we're going to be committed to marriage in the way um, that we should be. So, what we're seeing is that obviously, unless you're widowed, we're going to see that if your husband or wife dies, you are then free to remarry, okay. But unless you are widowed, if you ever marry someone else, Unless you are the innocent victim of adultery, then both you and they are adulterers. Now, let's say at this point as well, we've just got to view this from another angle as well. Because the point is, even if you've got someone who they are free to remarry, they're not just free to remarry anyone. They're not free to remarry someone who is not themselves biblically marriageable. You see the point? you may be free to remarry in the Lord. But one, you're not allowed to marry an unbeliever, and you're not allowed to marry a believer who has themselves been illegitimately divorced. You see the point? So, what we've got, okay, is an exception clause. Adultery. If you're the innocent victim of adultery... Then you are free to divorce and to remarry. But I want to put in a tremendously important qualification at this point. The existence of this adultery clause does not mean that it's inevitable that a marriage needs to end because one of the, either the husband or wife has committed adultery. If the guilty party is repentant, and the innocent party wants to maintain the marriage, well, that is always the best. I mean, come on, following the Lord is about grace and about forgiveness that that's what following the Lord is all about, and there are many marriages many. Christian marriages which have not only survived adultery, but they've gone on to be greatly blessed and have gone on from strength to strength. Because there <laughs> has been the proper repentance on behalf of the guilty party, and the innocent party has extended that grace and forgiveness. So therefore Romans 8.28 in everything God works together for good to them that love him and who are called according to his purpose. That works with adultery as well. Now, let me say that, I mean, you know, I, I'm sure I will never be in the position of discovering that Blinder has committed adultery. Now, obviously, a lot of times when someone is committing adultery, actually they're ending the marriage because they want to go off with someone else. Well, if that's the case, then the innocent party, they don't have a choice to make, do they? Their their husband or wife hasn't only committed adultery, they've gone. So you haven't got any choice in the matter. And I think that is the main circumstance that the Lord is thinking of when he makes these clauses. And, And... For me, now, obviously, if I ever ended up in a situation, if Belinda was committing adultery and was going off with someone, and off she's gone with her new boyfriend, I've got no decision to make, have I? But if Belinda ever commits adultery and is repentant, you know, is is repentant and saying, sorry, I've got to tell you, I wouldn't even have to think about it. It's forgiveness. She's my wife. Would I then end that marriage? Not in a million years would I end that marriage. I wouldn't even have to think about it. And that's tremendously important. As I say, there are Christian marriages all over the place which have survived adultery and which have gone on and, and, and been as wonderful marriages afterwards as they were before the adultery happens. So for me, it, it wouldn't be an issue. I love Belinda. I mean, she's my wife. I want her to be with me. If she committed adultery, if she was repentant and wanted to stay with me, why, why would I send her away? I wouldn't. I'd forgive her. Endless. I wouldn't have to think twice about it. I would forgive her. So we, we mustn't in any way think that adultery, therefore, it's it that, that the marriage needs to end. The marriage does not need to end. But what we do have is this clause. that if And, and I think the clause is particularly when the innocent party, the guilty party, has left them and gone off. Or if they're a serial adulterer and that and, and you, you, you could never ever believe them again. But if for whatever reason the innocent party feels they cannot continue with the marriage and want to end the marriage then they must be free to do so and they are then free to remarry. So basically that is the teaching of Jesus. We we haven't any other scriptures to look at from Jesus all right, on this subject. And I've given you my best understanding of what they're saying. But there are other scriptures we need to look at. So if you go now to 1 Corinthians 7, because we've got to see some teaching from Paul on this. So one Corinthians chapter seven, and uh, we're, we're largely going to be looking at, at, at verses eight to um eight to fifteen. But I just want to start off with verse thirty nine, okay? And he says, a woman is bound to her husband. As long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. So, okay, there you have it. Marry, you know, if your husband or wife dies, you are not bound. The marriage is over alright, you are free to remarry. Obviously, only in the Lord. You can only marry a believer. And obviously, you can only marry a believer if, as we're seeing, they are biblically marriageable. Can you see what I mean? So, if they were divorced as the innocent victim of adultery, you're free to marry them. But if they're divorced for other reasons, okay, then you're not. If you see, see what I mean, then, it, then then it would be... Adultery, but there's one other clause that we need to see and it's in the teaching of Paul because basically from verse 8 to 16 we, we see Paul dealing with three different categories of people now let's go through each category verse 8 and 9 now to the unmarried and the widows obviously a widow unmarried you know, okay? so the unmarried and the widows I say it's good for them to stay unmarried as I am and later on in this chapter Paul makes it very clear that in his opinion and he was writing to them at a time of impending distress as he says he states that in his opinion you're better to stay single but he makes it clear that when he says that It is his opinion that it's not binding authoritative, you know, command, okay? And he says, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So there you have category one, okay? So, um, you know, he says, okay, to the unmarried, and, and that's all quite straightforward. Now, category two, in verse 10. To the married, I give this command... Not I, but the Lord. Now, let me let me just sort that out for you. What Paul's meaning by that is that what he's going to cover now in this verse and the one after it is what Jesus had already covered in his public ministry. We've already read it, haven't we? We've seen Jesus' teaching about divorce that would, you know, sort of like cover two Christians, two believers who are married. So when Paul says... I, sorry, not I but the Lord, he's saying this is already on record, this is what Jesus taught publicly. So he says to the married I give this command, not I but the Lord, a wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. Now, a couple of things there. Paul uses a different Greek word from from the word that Matthew uses of Jesus' teaching. And for divorce, he uses the Greek word aphiomai. And it simply means to send away. It means to set free. Different word, same meaning. And in fact, sometimes it means to forgive sin, other times it means to remit debts. But the point is, it was one of the Greek words that would be used of divorce. And it's from its usage, the context of its usage, that you establish that. So, (coughs) the point is, what we've got here, is that Jesus is saying, look, if you're married, you can't end that marriage and um, remarry. Now, obviously, the adultery clause from Jesus is here taken as read, because obviously Paul is just reiterating the main point that Jesus made that marriage is for life and not just for Christmas as we saw early but there is something else here Paul makes an allowance for the possibility of a husband and wife being apart from each other but establishes they're not to remarry and the aim is for them to be reconciled Now that's important, because there are sometimes circumstances where, I'll give you a very blatant example, where there's domestic violence. Where it may be important for a wife and a husband to be apart from each other, you see, separate from each other, for the safety of the wife, and increasingly today, there are husband beaters. There's a massive unspoken problem in our society now with men who are beaten up by their wives regularly. Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. But that would be an example. But the point is, if a situation like that arises, there, it may be allowable in any one instance for a husband and wife to live apart from each other without it necessarily being church discipline. But the understanding is <coughs> that they're not to remarry and the idea is to get them over the problem so they can be reconciled okay so Paul chucks that in as well okay so then in verse 12 we have the third category and he says to the rest i say now can you see the point here we've got three categories category 1 unmarried people category 2 married people category three the rest Huh? I mean if you've dealt with married people and you've dealt with unmarried people who's left and we're going to see that there is a third category that doesn't quite fit the norm and what we're going to see now is that Paul deals with the situation that could well arise when you have a believer married to an unbeliever now just notice in this Paul says I not the Lord so he says to the rest I say this I not the Lord and the reason he said that that is that when he dealt with the married he was simply reiterating what Jesus had already taught in public and was well known but Jesus never in his public (coughs) ministry dealt with the issue of what happens if you've got a believer married to an unbeliever that revelation was given through Paul so here's a new command and it's coming from the lord paul's an apostle he got all his teaching from the lord <coughs> but jesus never covered it in his public ministry and basically what paul teaches about is this remember he's he's he he's dealing with um a situation where you've got a believer married to an unbeliever. Now, let's immediately make it clear. This this is a situation where you've got two unbelievers who are married and one of them has got saved. You know, there's no excuse here for a believer to marry an unbeliever and then have a get-out clause. So we've got to be clear about that. If a believer wants to marry an unbeliever, that will be church discipline. Okay, But what Paul makes clear here is this, that if you've got a situation where someone has got saved, whether it's the husband or the wife, is neither here nor there. This applies equally to men and to women. Where the spouse, all right, has got saved, and the other spouse is an unbeliever, all right? So what happens now? Well, what Paul says, if the unbeliever is happy to keep the marriage going, no change. The believer must not... End the marriage. Paul lays that down 100%. But what he then goes on to say, if you go down to verse 15, but if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. Now, notice, when he was talking in verse 39 about... What about someone whose husband or wife has died? He says, you're free to remarry. You're not bound. Can you see the point? Yeah. Now, these two words, bound, in verse 39 and here in verse 15, in the Greek, they're different words. But they mean exactly the same thing. Can you see the point? Paul is dealing... The bound is whether or not you're free to divorce or remarry. Do you see the whole point? That's exactly what he's saying. So in verse 39... If your husband dies, you're not bound, you're free to remarry. So in verse 15 he says, If the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. The believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. So what Paul is saying, when you've got someone who's got converted, so here you've got pagans or Jews or whatever, and then man and wife, one of them gets saved. If the unbeliever is happy to stay in the marriage, the believer is not free to end that marriage and remarry. But if the unbeliever wants out because they don't want to be married to a believer, then what Paul is saying here is in that circumstance, the unbeliever is not to fight to stay in the marriage, let the unbeliever divorce you, and then you are free to remarry. Okay. So again, (laughs) here we have... Another clause whereby someone who has ended up divorced is the innocent victim of having been deserted by an unbeliever, all right? And in those circumstances the innocent victim of that desertion by an unbeliever is free to remarry. So therefore, okay, what does this mean for us as a church? What it means is this, if someone's marriage ends, except in the above instances, and they are wanting to remarry, that will be church discipline. They are not free to remarry, and if they do, not only will they be committing adultery, the person they marry will be committing adultery as well. Now there's one other point that I want to make. And for me, the jury is still out on this one. Because there are those who are very, very serious about the Word of God, who teach that divorce pre-conversion is annulled in God's eyes when someone becomes a a Christian and therefore becomes a new creation in Christ so there are those who say that when someone gets converted because they become a new creation that wipes out as it were any failed marriage record that's gone before in the non-Christian life now Roger Price, who I've always had a tremendous amount of time for, and have a massive respect for as someone who was really serious about the word of God and not your standard compromiser, he taught this. Um, you know, and he, he 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 taught this, he was utterly convinced about it. He he, he would have, I, 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 you know, sort of, like he, he wouldn't have gone along with willy-nilly divorce and remarriage, but, but certainly... He, he taught this. Now, I, I've got to say, I'm, I'm honestly not sure. I, I can't work that out. I look at it from one angle the new creation and Noel's prior marriage record. Yeah, I see that. Uh, but if a murderer gets saved, you don't then not put him to death. Is the point? So I'm honestly not sure about that. If, if we ever have to face that one as a church, then we'll just have to trust that we can sort that out at the time i'm not sure on that so if someone came amongst us someone got converted if they've been illegitimately divorced as an unbeliever all right i do, i do not know whether they're free to remarry okay but i wouldn't i wouldn't get too excited you know that that wouldn't be in the same category for me as a christian who you know divorce, you know okay so anyway i'm not sure that the jury is out on that one But anyway, we can't, you know, sort of like finish this study without addressing the problem though, okay? Well, fine. What we've established is this. There is an awful lot of illegitimate divorce and remarriage amongst believers. And I've, I've, I've met lots of believers. They're married, but they shouldn't be. You see what I mean? They had no proper grounds to divorce, and, you know, so, yeah. What do we do then when we come across or if people want to become part of the church who are already in marriages that should never have happened? What do we do about that? There are those who say you refuse fellowship with them. That you say to them you must split up and if you split up then we'll have fellowship with you but We can't have fellowship with you while you're in this marriage because it's adultery. So this this is a real difficult problem. What do you do? Is there anything in the Bible that might guide us? And yes, I think there is. And uh, it's, it's all to do with the qualifications for being an elder. So if you go to 1 Timothy, you'll see what I mean in a minute. Go to 1 Timothy. And in chapter 3, and in verse 2, we have um, the beginning of Paul laying out the qualifications, what must be true of anyone who is being considered to be recognized as an elder. And in verse 2 we read this, Now the overseer, which is one of the biblical words for elder, overseer, pastor, shepherd, bishop, elder, synonymous words for the same people. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife. Now, and what's interesting is that that, that a good father and good husband comes ten times qualifications later. So, so what's this, the husband of one wife? Now, in the Greek, the Greek does not have a word for a husband, and it doesn't have a word for a wife. Greek just has a word for a man and a woman. But from the context you establish whether it's referring to man or a wife. So the point is, the Greeks knew if they were talking about husband or wife, they just didn't have specific words for it. So for us, husband, I'm a man, but I'm a husband. In the Greek, it's just man. But the point is, the usage, the context, is how you establish, where it's merely talking about a man or a woman or a husband and a wife. And the context here makes it absolutely clear that it's talking about husband and wife okay so really what the greek is saying is that the characteristic of an elder and it actually comes first in the list so you've got above reproach and then you've got a definition of what this means and number one is he must be a one woman man Hmm, that's interesting why must he be a one woman man what's all that about if you go to titus which is the parallel passage where Paul deals with the qualifications of elders. And in Titus 1 verse 6. He says an elder must be blameless. And then you get a long list of what that means. The husband of but one wife. In the Greek, a one woman man. But the context clearly is referring the husband of but one wife. What's going on here? He must be a good husband and father as well, but this one woman man is separate from being a good husband and father. Can you see the point? What's happening here? What's this one woman man bit? Well, the answer is quite simply <coughs> that in New Testament times, polygamy was still practiced amongst some Jews. Not amongst the Romans. Not amongst the Greeks. But some Jews still practiced polygamy. And this is one of the reasons why Jesus emphasizes in his teaching that in the beginning, what was it? It was one man and one woman for life. So what that means is this. In the early church, there would have been instances of people who got converted and they had multiple wives so the point is they weren't then expected to divorce all but one they weren't expected to choose one and get rid of the rest and it's obvious why to do that would create more evil than you've solved do you see the point that i'm making There are just some problems that can't be rectified without actually creating even more serious problems than you're solving. So therefore, can you see we have a principle in the Bible that recognizes you can't unscramble eggs. So the point about an elder having to be a one-woman man is this there might be someone in the church who over years as a believer has proved himself as a wonderful husband and a wonderful father and in every possible way comes up to qualifications of eldership but if he's got more than one wife they didn't recognize them as elders because that would send out the wrong message can you see what I mean? So therefore, in a church where you've got people with more than one wife, under the New Covenant which teaches you can only have one wife, it must be absolutely clear that the fact that there are some people who have already got multiple wives when they got saved doesn't mean that anyone else in the church who's already got a wife can go out and get another one. You see the point? the standard must be held absolutely clear. So can you see the principle? They weren't expected to get rid of all their wives put one. But it had to be maintained that although that had already happened, there's nothing you can do about it, but that's not what God wants, and certainly no one else (laughs) must get into that situation. So even if there was a church, and maybe there were people there with multiple wives, if there was someone there who said, well, I've got a wife, and I think she's very nice, but I've met this other girl, and oh, she's absolutely lovely, and I think I'll have some of that. That would be church discipline. Do you see the point? The fact that others have already done it wouldn't mean that you're free to do it. So this principle of you can't unscramble eggs it is, is, is one that obviously we need to apply that nowadays. We're not going to you know, hit polygamists because it's illegal in our society. That's not a problem we're going to face. Uh, but there they did. The problem we're going to be facing is Christians who are remarried illegitimately. And I put it to you, this should be the principle that we should have. And again, Romans eight twenty eight. You see, all things work together for good. So and and, and I think that the great example, you know, obviously it is the example I always give here, isn't it? Is David and Bathsheba. That we it's absolutely clear David and now David was an example of a polygamist. And and you know, it was one of the things that God overlooked. Paul said that in, in past times there were certain things that God overlooked. But everything is tightened up in the new covenant, and one of the things that God overlooked was polygamy. David himself had multiple wives. But the point was he wanted Bathsheba, committed adultery with her. Not only that, when she got pregnant, in order to hide that, okay, he, 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 he tried to get her husband back off the front line in a war to make it look like it was his. The husband, because he was so aware of his mates out dying, wouldn't sleep with her because he was such an honourable and committed soldier. And so what David did then is he had him put in a position in the wall where where he would die. Basically, David had him murdered. So now, not only has David committed adultery with Bathsheba, now he's had her husband murdered. You can't get lower than this. And that baby that she had died as a, a judgment. But the point was Bathsheba was then a widow. and, And David was free to marry her, and he did. Now, the incredible thing is that when we ask the question, well, was God's blessing on that marriage or not? Incredibly, the messianic heir, Solomon, came through Bathsheba. Not through any of David's other wives. Now, does that make the marriage right? Absolutely not, but I'm saying you can't unscramble eggs. And and the application of Romans 8.28, if it's anything at all, is that we should be in God's plan A, but if you end up in God's <coughs> plan B, if you repent, it becomes plan A. You see the point? And that is the principle that I think we've got to take when it comes to fellowshipping with believers who are remarried when they shouldn't be. I, 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 I do know someone who does take the position where you know and, and and you know, sort of like he you know, he was starting a church and we we spent time there. And uh, one of the problems is that if, if anyone was in the church and and, and he, he believed there should be no divorce or remarriage at all. Alright. Now if, if if he became aware that you were remarried after divorce for any reason at all, he'd put you out of fellowship unless you divorced. So I I couldn't go there. I couldn't go there. Can you see what I mean? So I think this is the principle that we we've, we've got to observe when it comes to fellowshipping with people who are remarried when they shouldn't be okay so basically for me what it boils down to is this marriage and divorce there are three schools of thought amongst Christians today up till probably 50, 55 years ago there were two schools of thought but now there are three schools of thought the first one is no remarriage at all outside of being widowed. That's the first school of thought. The second school of thought is where I am. No remarriage after divorce except for certain very limited clauses. Okay. And then the third school of thought, and this is the one that's winning today amongst Christians and it's relatively new, historically, what the Bible says about this is too tough. So just turn a blind eye to it. Now, school of thought 1 and 2, I think, are entirely honourable. And whereas I don't agree, I don't see in the Bible the no marriage under any circumstance, except being widowed, I don't see that in the Scripture. But I think that is entirely honourable. Obviously the position I'm taking I think is honourable, or I won't be taking it because I'm convinced you know, that it's what the Bible teaches. Position three I think is entirely dishonourable and we shouldn't have the time of day for it. So divorce and remarriage, that for what it's worth is my very best understanding of um, of what the Bible teaches. Boom, boom.